the, the Gospel of Mark was written by a young man named John Mark. Interestingly, he's a character that's never mentioned in the Gospel, but he's mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament at least eight times. He was uh, kind of, I guess you could call him a student of the Apostle Peter, who was kind of the chief of the apostles in the first generation. And John Mark was uh, worked with him, traveled with him, learned from him, and what he knew about Jesus came from uh, Peter, and he wrote it down in the form of this gospel. In the section that we're in, because we've been working through the gospel of Mark for some time, kind of off and on over the months, in the section that we're in, everything Mark is doing is, is he's trying to illustrate for you what the kingdom of God is like. So he tells all these stories about what Jesus has been doing, what Jesus has been teaching, and he's trying to impress upon the reader uh, there's something new and different and unexpected going on here. The kingdom of God is not like what you anticipated it to be. It's actually very different. And so in the previous chapters, we see illustrations like this. Numerous healings by Jesus. The religious leaders ask him for a sign. Okay? After, after seeing the healings, Jesus responds by the first of three times of predicting his own death and resurrection. Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah. The transfiguration in which Jesus is transformed in front of the disciples and they get a sort of a sneak peek into uh, what the glorified Jesus will look like. All these stories teach us about the kingdom of God and so does the one that we're going to read today, which is about Jesus and the children. In Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, and they were rebuking, uh, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. It really is fitting that Jesus would use children as an illustration for the kingdom of God because children show us what it means to really enter the kingdom of God. Here's one of the ways in which the image works. Children are helpless. What can a child do for itself? And it's only as a child begins to grow and transition, really begins that transition, away from childness and into adultness that they begin to be self-sufficient. I mean, see, by definition, to be childlike is to be dependent. And so it is with us. When we enter the kingdom of God, we are helpless in our sins and in our struggles. We can do nothing to provide for ourselves spiritually. We're lost and we're broken and we're falling short by any measurement. But Jesus intervenes, you see. He did everything that we're supposed to do. He did everything that we failed to do. And he did it for us, in our place, even to the point of death, you see. Until we realize our own incompetence, our own limitations, our own failure, until we acknowledge those, we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so in that sense, we are supposed to be childlike, right? Well, the image works in another way. The illustration works also like this. What are children? Children are fresh. They're real. They're adventurous. They're honest. And they're new. They're beautiful because they're new. They're so honest that sometimes it's embarrassing, right? 
All the moms and dads in the crowd are nodding. The children are fresh and real and adventurous and honest and new. And do you know what else is? The kingdom of God is. It's fresh and it's real and it's adventurous and it's honest and it's new. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's a whole different way of doing things. It's a whole different way of seeing things and thinking about things. And we'll get back to that in a minute. Think about this. Children are so innocent that it's both beautiful and it's dangerous. Children are so trusting that they're vulnerable. And there is an illustration of what faith is like. The kind of faith that is necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. It has to be so innocent and so trusting so completely that it's beautiful and it's dangerous and it's vulnerable. And if you say, well, I'm not willing to be like that. I'm not sure that I'm willing to be vulnerable. I'm not willing that I'm not sure that I'm willing to be childlike. If that's where you if that's what you think, then I have bad news. And the bad news is you can't enter the kingdom of God. It requires that childlike approach. That's the consistent testimony of Jesus. Now let me clarify maybe a misconception about this passage. Just because Jesus used children to illustrate the kingdom does not mean that he was naive about children. You see? Jesus was not being naive. He was not idealizing them. He was not making them out to be perfect little angels. Jesus would have been around children all his life growing up in a village context. And don't forget that he was the big brother in the family to what probably was actually quite a lot of younger siblings. So Jesus knew about diapers. Jesus knew about crying and lots of it. Jesus knew about sleepless nights. So he's not trying to idealize children. But what he is trying to do is illustrate the Christian life to us. To be a Christian is to be like a child. We start by declaring our helplessness. We can do nothing to provide for ourselves spiritually. We cannot live We cannot survive unless someone else acts on our behalf. Right? That's the the kingdom. Like children, we need to be nourished and cared for and taught. We start out knowing nothing except our parents' love. And by their love, we learn and grow and mature. We need the gentle love and the steady care of our Father in heaven and the church, who the Reformers often called our mother. So if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, one of the things Jesus is teaching us is that we can look to children and we can learn from them. That's very interesting. There are two sort of big picture things that I think we need to learn from this passage. The first, well, two two bigger things, two big categories of things. The first is very kind of 30,000 foot view. The, the overview, the big picture. The second one is much more specific. But first, the big picture perspective. One thing that we learn from this passage, from reading about Jesus' interaction with children in this story, is that Jesus has an entirely different way of seeing or valuing things than we do. It's entirely different. He does not look at the world the way that we do. You see, in the Roman culture, consistently across the board, children were viewed as subhuman. They were disposable commodities. They were a necessary evil and more of an obstacle to living the good life than a part of it. There's something to be tolerated. You have to kind of get through the child years, and then they become real people, adults. That was the attitude at the, at the, in, the, in the Roman Empire. 
And so in that context, I mean, we read this passage, the disciples' reaction to children would have been absolutely perfectly normal in that day and age. And maybe it strikes us as a little rude or abrupt. Why would they tell the children to get lost like that? But that would have, that would have been how, I mean, honestly, they were saying what everyone in the crowd was thinking. Everybody in the crowd would be thinking something like this. The teacher doesn't have time for those kind of people. They're so below him that they don't warrant his attention. Why are these silly moms bringing their children here? Go away and come back when you're old enough to be worth paying attention to. That was the attitude of the crowd. And that contrast is so great. You can see so clearly how Jesus' heart is different than theirs. And how he sees and values everything in different terms. And it wasn't just back then either. Because it wasn't just the Roman Empire that has that attitude toward children. All civilizations throughout history, frankly, have looked down on children. Yes, every civilization, even ours. We like to think of ourselves as advanced, as different than the past, as so much better than anything that ever came before us. And we would probably say, well, we have a, much, uh, we have a very different attitude toward children. Uh, than people in the past did. And yet, how often do we see children as a disruption, as a burden, as an interruption to our lives? But think about how different Jesus' reaction is here. One writer described Jesus this way. He said, He isn't bothered by the fact that some of the children brought to him can't talk properly. He isn't bothered that some may be dirty and smelly. Jesus isn't bothered that some of them will be up to mischief the moment that they think nobody's looking. Jesus simply relishes young life, bubbling up like water from a fountain and refusing to be quenched. That's how one writer put it. And I think that Jesus' reaction to the children in this passage shows us that praise be to God that he does not see things the way that we do. Jesus has different values than we do. And it turns out that we're the ones that have it backwards. How many times did Jesus teach us that the first will be last and the last will be first? That those who think that they understand really just don't get it? How many times did that, does that come out in the Gospels? The kingdom of God simply does not work like we think it does. Who would have ever guessed that the kingdom of heaven belongs, belongs to the poor and to the persecuted? That's what Jesus taught. Who would have ever thought that the meek of all people would inherit the earth? Who would have ever thought that those who mourn will, the promise of God, will actually be comforted? Who would have ever thought that it is those who pursue righteousness of all things who will be satisfied? Who would have ever thought that it's the pure in heart who actually get to see the God who made everything? Those are all things that Jesus taught. The kingdom of God never, ever works like we expect it to. And that's because Jesus sees everything differently than we do. And think about it. Think about it for just a moment. Is that any surprise? Of course Jesus sees things differently than we do. Why would we ever expect the Son of God to see or to measure or to value things the same way we do? We have such limited knowledge. The lens through which we view the world is, frankly, a pretty self-focused one. We struggle to understand the thoughts and emotions that are swirling around in our own heads. We don't know how to solve our own problems, let alone other people's. 
contrast that with Jesus, the one who created everything and therefore has a knowledge just not just of each and every individual thing, but how every little detail about every little thing connects to everything else. He not only understands our, th- our, our thoughts and our struggles, but he is also willing to enter into them and serve us even unto death. Jesus is so incredibly different than us. It should be no surprise to us at all that he sees, that he measures, that he values things differently than we do. It should never surprise us. He's altogether 100% different. And yet so often, how do we react? We're surprised. We complain. We struggle with him. We say, why are you doing this this way, God? The moment we, the moment we take that posture against him, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I know the answer to this better than you do. Jesus, I know what you ought to be doing here right now. And you're not doing it right. How often do we, do we think that way? Far, far too often. And that's really actually very, very silly. Really ridiculous. We should content ourselves to be the limited creatures, and we should want the all-knowing, all-powerful God who made us to do what he does best. And that is be God. You're God, not me. That should be the attitude of my life. And we should be immensely, immeasurably encouraged that Jesus does not see, that he does not measure, that he does not value things the way we do. We like to elevate ourselves. We discount other people. We try to evaluate our world in terms of what, of how it can serve me and my interests. And thank God that he doesn't do what we do or there would be no hope for us all. So that's the first thing that I think we have to see in this passage. The big 30,000-foot picture is, thank God that he, doesn't, that he doesn't see things the way we do. Here's the second thing. It's very much more uh, specific and I think practical. And it's this, very short. Christians of all people Christians should invest in children. We should invest in children. Let me kind of let me let me go about it. Let me let me mention it this way. We often have a very ambiguous perspective on our children when it comes to faith. This is what I mean. Parents, would you describe your son or your daughter as a Christian? For most of us, that's a very tough question to answer. We can describe our own faith. We can say yes or no, I'm a Christian, I'm not a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I don't believe in Jesus. But when asked about our children, most often we don't know what to say. We feel ambiguous on this point because without thinking about it, we have defined a Christian as someone who professes verbally, audibly professes faith in Jesus. And because our children can't in their... Our infants in their, in their squeaky little voice can't say, yes, I'm a Christian. Because, because they can't audibly articulate those words, we don't know what to do with it. In fact, we, we tend to assume they're not. We're reluctant to call them Christians, and so they remain in an intermittent state of limbo as far as their faith is concerned. But let me tell you, that's not how the Bible describes children. It's not how the Bible sees children. There is no ambiguity in Scripture 
about what we should call the children of God's people. Do you know what the children of God's people are called in Scripture? From beginning to end, you know what they're called? They're called God's people. They're a part of the earthly community of the people of God. In the Old Testament, that was Israel. Today, that's the church. And throughout the Bible, we see several things. First, we see throughout the entire Bible, from beginning to end, it is God's declared purpose that His saving grace should be run in the lines of generations. If I could rephrase that, what God is doing is a multi-generation project. That's the way the entire Bible describes the work of God in the family. Number two, the biblical paradigm for covenant children is to grow up in faith from infancy. Throughout the Bible, it's almost assumed that this is what will happen. If you, if you train a child in the ways of the Lord, what will happen? The biblical pattern is very, very consistent. Number three, parents are charged, not encouraged, not suggested. Parents are charged to nurture their children in Christian faith and love. And number four, the God-ordained means of awakening covenant children to spiritual life is most often being raised in the gospel by their parents and by their church. Now, I don't mean to say that anyone is saved in any way apart from the work of Jesus. Faith in Christ alone. But I do mean to say that faith is a gift from God one that we know from Scripture can be given to a child even still in its mother's womb. And the promises of God throughout the Bible indicate that the children in our community deserve the benefit of the doubt. We should call them Christians until they are proven to be otherwise. We should include them in the family of the church as authentic members of the community of the people of God. We need to invest in them we need to nurture them, to encourage them, to care for them, to love them as our sons and daughters and brothers and sisters in Christ from day one. That is our obligation. Let me put it, a, let me put it another way. Anyone who has been baptized, have you been baptized? Anyone who has been baptized has been outwardly designated as a member of the community of God's people. And that person is entitled to all the rights, the privileges, the responsibilities that come with being a part of the church. Throughout its history, the church's duties have been to proclaim the word of God, to administer the sacraments, to exercise discipline, and all three of those things to the edification of God's people and to God's glory. And when you were baptized into the family of God, as two little girls will be here in just a few minutes, the church's work in each of those three, word, sacraments, and discipline, began for you. The church's ministry to you was formalized by baptism. Why would we exclude from that ministry our littlest members? But let me take one step more and make this even more practical to you. Jesus' rebuke of his disciples. No, let the ch little children come to me. It rings loud in our world. Far too often in our culture, as we've already said, children are viewed as subhuman, as disposable commodities, as an obstacle to living the good life 
instead of a part of it. We don't have to look far to see that. You don't have to look very far to see abuse, neglect, detached and uninvested parents, abortion, or just our, our culture's general attitude toward the family. We, we all run into that every day. And let me put it this way. This is the most practical thing that I'm going to say today. Our culture's attitude toward all of those things must change. And that change must begin with us. How do we begin the change? Not in the way that that the world thinks the change begins. The world thinks the change begins with might. And I will tell you, if you want to change the culture... Our culture's attitude toward children, I'll tell you where it begins. It begins with tears. We must shed tears over the things that are happening to children around the world. If you are not grieving at the horrors that children around the world experience, it's because you're not paying attention. And I tell you, change begins with us being affected by this and saying this is wrong and evil is evil. It's easier to ignore the facts or when we do encounter the facts to harden ourselves against them. But that's not what Jesus calls us to do. In fact, it's just the opposite of what Jesus calls us to do. Ignoring evil and hardening our hearts are satanic responses to evil. Instead, we should be grieved to tears about the evil that happens in this world, especially the evil that is done to children. Well, after the tears, then what? Well, the tears, the grief should move us to get more involved to serve children with the love of Jesus. None of us is excluded from this call. We all need to extend the love of Christ to children. And there are many ways to do that. There are many ways to do that here at All Saints. The first is simple. Help parents. Ask any parent here. They will tell you being a parent is really hard. And it's really discouraging. And half the time, you really, honestly, kids, plug your ears. Half the time, you don't have any idea what you're doing. Right? That's the truth. Parenting is hard, and parents here need help. And honestly, even if the only thing you do for a parent here is to say, you know what, I'm going to commit myself to pray for you. Even if it's just that. What could be more encouraging than having somebody say, I am going to come alongside you. And I'm going to pray for you that God would give you the grace you need to raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. What an encouragement just that alone would be. There are numerous other ways here at All Saints that you can serve the children here. In your announcement sheet, you can see that there's a vacation Bible school this summer. We need a third and fourth grade teacher, fifth and sixth grade teacher, costume coordinator, missions project coordinator, publicity assistant. Snacks, recreation, etc., etc. Can you can you serve the children in that way? You don't even have to be there during the week. You can you can prepare something and drop it off. Natalie, raise your hand. If you want to if you want to get involved in vacation Bible school, you can talk to Natalie, and you should do it soon because plans are are in the works. Nursery. In our nursery, I will say this: in our nursery, we have the littlest members of our church. 
why would, why would we not want to get in there and show the love of Christ to them? I'll give you an example. Mary Mitzner has been going downstairs and reading Bible stories to the children in the nursery for longer than I can remember. Okay? What, what better service could there be than to have a, a, a zero-year-old, a one-year-old, a two-year-old growing up in their earliest memories reading the Word of God, hearing the stories from the Bible? Well, Mary's told me this is the last Sunday that she can do it for a while. Maybe is one of you, is one of you able to go downstairs and read Bible stories to the children in the nursery? Or just volunteer to serve in the nursery? I know Kate Stillman could always use more hands to do that. Sunday school finishes next week. We have to start preparing for next fall Sunday school. Are you willing to teach? What? I mean, yeah, teaching is a time commitment. You say, oh, boy, now I'm locked in to once a week being at a certain place and time, and I don't know if I like being locked in. Honestly, what a greater sacrifice. Do you not remember the Sunday school teachers you had? They have an impact on your life. Honestly, even if you don't remember, they shape you. What a beautiful thing we could do to, to shape the children in our church via Sunday school. And I'll tell you, just in general, aside from signing up for anything, how wonderful it is when I see somebody in our church paying attention to the children here, speaking to them, investing in them, giving out silver dollars to them. It's uh, giving, them, giving them a lolly. I mean, honestly, we have to work hard to make this their place. They need to want to come here. They need to say, yay, it's Sunday. I'm, I'm so excited to go to church. And that takes all of us, welcoming them, loving them, investing in them. It does not happen naturally or accidentally. It's an intentional investment that we all need to make. Okay, that's all saints. What about beyond all saints? There's in, innumerable ways in which you can serve children in the name of Jesus beyond all saints. You say, well, I'm, I'm super short on time. You know, time, I just don't want to add anything else into my busy, busy life. I'm sure that many, many people here feel that way. But Compassion International enables you to provide for the material needs of a child in a third world place just simply by writing, that, writing the check. You're providing what they need. My family uh, has adopted a student at the Africa Bright Future School in Rwanda. And we pay toward his education. And this is a, if you know anything about the history of Rwanda, it's one of the most tragic and evil stories of civil war and genocide in the entire 20th century. It's a nation that's rebuilding, and there's a school there. And it may not, be, it may not sound like much, but my family, one student goes to school at a Christian school in Rwanda. Sacred Road. In your bulletin, there's a Sacred Road missions trip. I was just shocked when Dirk Carlson told me that somewhere between 70 and 80% of the middle school and high school students at the Yakima Indian Reservation in Washington, which is not far from us, 70 to 80% of the teenagers on that reservation are homeless. Homeless. They literally wander from house to house, and you'll find them wherever, whoever's house happens to have some food. Well, what more? Reaching out to them in the name of Christ. If they're not going to hear it, hear it from us and from Sacred Road Ministries and us supporting them, how are they going to hear it? Royal Family Kids Camp, end of June. An opportunity to maybe be the first person 
in the life of a foster child to tell them, Jesus loves you. You might get to be the first person to ever utter those words to a child. Bill and Wendy, raise your hands. These are guys that you want to talk about Royal Family Kids Camp, you can talk with them. And I'll tell you this, one last example. The Idaho State Foster Care System in general. Let me give you a statistic. If every church in the state of Idaho welcomed into its community, sort of adopted, if you will, one foster care child, do you know what would happen? The foster care system in total would cease to exist. There would be no foster children left in the system if every church took in just one. These are really super practical ways, really super practical ways that we can be the love of Christ to children. And let me put it this way. Ultimately, loving children is an opportunity for us to follow Jesus, to be like him. Just as he taught and served and loved those who were helpless. That was us. That's you and me. So we must do the same. Jesus said, if you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. And I'd like to finish with this. There's a lot of kids here today. And I'm going to finish by the last part of my sermon. I'm going to talk only to the kids. All the kids in the room, if you wouldn't mind, would you stand up? Because I want you to be able to see me. All the kids. And I, I define kids in really broad terms, too, by the way. If you, if you feel like standing up, that's fine. Put the, let the kids, I want to see the kids. Kids, I have a question for you. Does Jesus love you? How do you know he loves you? Yeah. Do you know, do you have a favorite teacher? If you have a favorite teacher, shout out your favorite teacher ever's name. Mrs. Wilford. Who else? Ms. Gammon. Who else? Who's your favorite teacher? Yeah. See, teachers have a big impact. There were a couple Sunday school teachers named there. Uh, kids, I want you to hear one of my favorite teachers ever once told me that the best song in the world, the truest song in the world, the deepest song in the world, do you know what it was? He told me that the, the best song in the world is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Have you ever sung that song? Here's what I want you to do. If you don't know that song, I want you to learn it. And if you know that song, I want you to sing it over and over and over again until you never forget it. Do you know why? Because Jesus loves you. And so do I. And so do we. The body of Christ. Jesus people. The church. Amen.